Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. We are joined by the Tom Hanks of this podcast this week. So, and by that, I, of course, mean the first three-time guest on the show. She was, before this, the first two-time guest on the show. We've had, I think, a couple of people come back since then. But the first three-time guest, Shannon Watts. Shannon, before you say, hey, great to be here, all that, I'm going to tell people, if there are any left who don't know about you, all about you. Shannon Watts is the founder of the nation's largest grassroots group fighting against gun violence, Moms Demand Action, which has 8 million supporters and a chapter in every state. Watts is also an active board member of Emerge America, one of the nation's leading organizations for recruiting and training women to run for office, and Advance Peace, a prominent community-based organization that works to end cyclical and retaliatory gun violence in American urban neighborhoods. Her book, Fight Like a Mother, How a Grassroots Movement Took on the Gun Lobby and Why Women Will Change the World, was released in May of 2019 and is now available in paperback. Shannon, how you doing? I am great. Thank you for that. Uh, I feel very honored to be back. I'm sure it's by overwhelming demand from your fans and, and uh, particular Moms to Man Action volunteers. Yes. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Ravi, how are you feeling? Ravi was sick this week. Yeah, I, non-COVID, thankfully, but I'm I'm back on my feet and was greeted by the news this morning that we re-signed Stefan Diggs to a mega contract. And so I'm I'm, I'm flying now. I'm feeling good. Okay, good, good. Boy, if you get sick two or three more times, you might end up with a gray hair. That'd be terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know. I, I almost didn't post about it because I, I, I like my image of being youthful and spry. But <laughs> I, uh, the truth is, I, uh, you know, I'm mortal, Jason. Oh my gosh, that's a, that's news breaking it's tough news. For me. Uh, it's tough for me to admit. I, I have enough voice left to do this episode. I'm recording uh, the audiobook for my book, which. I don't know if you know this. I I have a book. Uh, it <laughs> it came it comes out July fifth. I may have mentioned it on here. Um, but all right, now we're getting to the show. We have been doing, which is to say, last week we started doing this uh, sort of trivial opening segment where we take something everybody is talking about and we dive into it before we get into all the serious stuff we want to talk about. But given that Shannon is here, we just couldn't go quite as trivial and classless as we did last week when we talked about orgies and cocaine in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but we still want to start with something that people are talking about. Uh, so, Ravi, what are we going to start with? 
Well, I promise you, listeners, we'll get to the classless in a second. And I think in some ways this could be even more classless than last week. But not because of anything we say, but because of what some others have said on the topic of immigration, which is really hot in D.C. right now. Uh, As we're speaking, uh, the Senate has refused to advance a $10 billion COVID preparedness bill. Uh, GOP members are holding up that vote because they want a vote to keep in place uh, pandemic-era border restrictions that started uh, early in the pandemic under Trump and were continued under Biden. These are so-called Title 42 rules, which restrict immigration to the U.S. from land borders. You know, there's a lot of contours to this debate. There's a lot of politics to that. But the part that's a little bit more salacious here is just how this immigration debate is playing out in Republican primaries. Uh, Let's go to the state of Ohio, uh, where immigration is getting top billing in that race in the GOP primary for Senate. Let's start with our our good old friend, J.D. Vance. Uh, This is an ad he uh, just debuted this week. Let's play it. Are you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. Joe Biden's open border is killing Ohioans, with more illegal drugs and more Democrat voters pouring into this country. This issue is personal. I nearly lost my mother to the poison coming across our border. No child should grow up an orphan. I'm J.D. Vance, and I approve this message because whatever they call us, we will put America first. Wow. Shannon, what do you think? (laughs) I mean, it it is it is really shocking how base that race has become. It's really kind of terrifying and indicative of what we should expect in America in the future. But, you know, we also saw Josh Mandel arguing with the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. on Twitter yesterday, saying that if only her dad had had a gun, you know, he would have survived. And I just I guess I'm not surprised anymore, but at the same time, just kind of devastated by the the rhetoric that is happening. And uh, it, it shouldn't be acceptable to anyone. It really shouldn't. I mean, it, the, the dog whistles are uh, megaphones now. That tweet, by the way, ended with know your history. Like, what a lousy motherfucker. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, good yeah, and we'll God. get to him. Let's not, let's yeah, not sorry. get ahead we, of this got, segment. We'll, we'll get to him. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. All right, back to this ad. Ravi, what's your favorite part of this ad? I love just how it opens. You know, I'm always teaching, you know, these these young people I'm trying to teach to be good writers here at Lost Debate. I'm always teaching them no throat clearing at the beginning of any writing. And then he just starts off by saying, are you a racist? <laughs> it's the beginning of the ad, which is I know what they're trying to do. They're saying they're not racists. And that's what they call people like you who have legitimate concerns. That's what they're trying to say. But I also I'm cynical enough to think that they're actually like appealing to the racists. Oh yeah. I really do believe that's I really do believe that's mm-hmm. the one of the many goals of this ad. Oh, it's a bank you shot, know? right? Because it's yeah. like you you get everybody's attention by asking that. You also are doing the thing you're describing, which is you're saying, look, they hate me, they hate you. That means you and I are the same. But what you're also doing is being like, wink, wink, I'm a racist and so are you. And that's why you want to vote for me. Uh, Yeah. 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 I also love the this is personal to me. And shout out to Grace who pointed this out over text message. And if you have to see the ad, I'm not encouraging anybody to go watch this, but you have to see the ad to see the very Hollywood, almost like look he gives to the camera when he says this is personal to me, where it's just clearly him acting. I'm not saying that he doesn't have a no, some personal story with his mom, but his deployment of this anecdote in this ad is so fraudulent 
it just makes me want to throw up. Well, it's pretty clear that up until maybe recently when he realized he could link it for this argument for this ad, J.D. Vance was at no point thinking that his mother's addiction issues came from the border. Like, that was not yeah. a thing he was thinking. Well, let's get to Josh Mandel, who we've mentioned, who is, a, a I think, the front runner in this race right now. Mm-hmm. And I think if you hated the J.D. Vance ad, you may hate this one even more. Let's play it. Critical race theory is crap. Martin Luther King marks right here. So skin color wouldn't matter. I didn't do two tours in Ambar province, fighting alongside Marines of every color to come home and be called a racist. There's nothing racist about stopping critical race theory and loving America. Josh Mandel, pro-God, pro-gun, pro-Trump. I'm Josh Mandel and I approve this message. You want a fighter? Send in the Marine. So wait, could, give me some military stuff. Was was J.D. Vance also a Marine or was that a dig at whatever branch of service that J.D. Vance was in? No, J.D. Vance, also a Marine. So it's sort okay. of like you have two choices. In the, it yeah, yeah, yeah. You have two choices. And I think he was standing. It was at the Pettus Bridge, I think, in this yeah, one from yeah, Selma. He's standing okay. at the Edmund Pettus Bridge when he says that. Classic. So he's, he's a civil rights leader. I well, think that's what we should take from this ad. No doubt. Shannon, is that what you take from this? You know, again, the theme here seems to be, you know, are you a racist and trying to get people to to agree that that's a, a common thread they share. The other piece of this is is how guns have become just such a part of this right wing extreme platform. Right. You're seeing all this legislation play out this session, including in Ohio, where anti-trans, anti-abortion, anti-women legislation is being paired with things like permitless carry, you know, and he had that slogan about God and guns. And and it has just become, uh, again, like racism, a dog whistle. I remember a friend of mine uh, who ran for the state house in Springfield, Missouri, a long time ago and won a long time ago, meaning like, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, Shout out to Sarah Lampe. Sarah Lampe in that campaign had to answer all of this stuff. And it was back then people referred to it as God's guns and gays. Those were the three, Mm -hmm. the three G's of the social issues that Democrats had to answer on. And Sarah Lampe was like in favor of sensible gun reforms, but like, you know, was also like supported the idea that the second amendment exists. And, you know, I mean, like basically where actually every mainstream gun reform organization, including Moms Demand is like, it's not like, like they're not against guns. Right. So Sarah Lampe's reply when they would ask her about God's guns and gays is she would say, I'm for them. I'm for them. I'm for them. Can we please talk about schools? And this just (laughs) reminded me of that. That was very effective. And she won. Yeah. Well, now they're linking it to schools, right? They learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They seem so concerned that they're being accused of being racist. You know, concerned or proud? Yeah, that's what I can't tell. I honestly can't tell. Well, there's an interesting difference between the two ads, and it's a it's a nuanced one. JD Vance's ad is basically like, yeah, maybe I'm a racist, but here's why, right? And Mandel's ad is like, I don't like being called a racist because I'm not a racist, and here I'm going to go into this, right? So it's interesting. It feels a little like one of them thinks they might be in the general election. Like one of them wants to just leave a little bit out there, which is funny because Mandel is the one who's like, you know, been pretending to be super conservative the longest. So I guess the way we should look at this in all seriousness is, is this argument potentially effective? And I do think we shouldn't be dismissive of the whole, when you call me a racist, 
I'm going to turn that against you and tell you all the reasons why you're the racist. Like we should listen to what that is so we can, we can counter it because what they're doing is they're putting everybody in their same trench and saying, look, they're all coming for us at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah. about cancel culture, right? So you call me a racist, then they're going to call you a racist next, and then we're all canceled, and I'll stand up for you. Exactly. That's exactly it. It's kind of dangerous in a way because it's, it, it, yeah, like you're saying, it lumps together these people who might be like, oh, everybody's racist now, therefore I'm, I'm not safe, versus the people who are actually racist. And like, and I thought the deployment of CRT was really interesting, like the critical race theory stuff in here. It's interesting to me that they feel emboldened on this issue. And so we'll keep monitoring this. I think this primary is coming up. I think it's in May. So we'll have we'll have an answer soon. And obviously we'll we'll be reporting on this. Uh, It's worth noting that the substance of what's happening in D.C. is really important here, where Schumer is refusing to call a vote on rescinding Title 42. So the Biden administration and the CDC are already announcing that they're going to be pulling back Title 42, uh, which has all sorts of implications about how people can get into this country from land. Schumer doesn't want to call a vote. And there's actually some really important substantive politics of this because there are certain Democrats, Tester being one of them, Mark Kelly potentially being another. Even Warnock has said he, at least as of this taping, has not said how he would vote on that. And so there are some people up for re-election like Kelly and Warnock who seem to be concerned about the politics of this, who don't appear to want to take a public position on this or who at least seem skeptical of Biden. So I think we should we should keep an eye on the politics of this. If they don't pass this COVID relief in the next couple of days, the Senate goes into recess for a couple of weeks at the end of this week. And so this thing will drag on. And so I think there there are some really important substantive politics and policy on this. I think one question that will be interesting uh, as this comes up in conversation uh, for for listeners is, so I guess the Republicans want to keep the COVID changes when it comes to immigration, but they see no need to keep any of the changes when it comes to elections. Yes, yes, yeah, or anything, right? They don't want mask mandates. I don't, I don't necessarily want those either anymore. But they don't want vaccine vaccine mandates. But they they somehow want to keep the border stuff. Yeah, but like we Uh, can't mail people ballots. Yeah, or yeah, or that. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting contradiction. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you probably have heard us talk about our Helix mattress. We love our Helix mattress. You know all about how much we love it. But Helix has left the bedroom and started making sofas. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they are already making the best sofas we've ever seen. So what makes an Allform sofa really cool? For starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials, and in a fraction of the cost of traditional stores, you can pick your fabric, and it's spill, stain, and scratch resistant, the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, and shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. And they're also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. It just takes three to seven days to arrive in the mail. And if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds a little risky, you don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. And they even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com. Form.com slash majority 54.
as Jason mentioned on the top of the show, I've been really sick. And one of the things that happens when you're sick is you can't really drink a lot of coffee. And one of the things I was most excited in getting back on my feet and back to work was to drink trade coffee. What I like is for people like me who are a little conservative in coffee, they kind of move you along gradually to try bolder and different flavors. And so I'm turning into a bit of a coffee snob, and I kind of like it. This is expert-tasted coffee. There's no one perfect coffee, but there is but there is a perfect coffee for you, and Trade's human-powered algorithm will find it. A human-powered algorithm. Just people caffeinated and bouncing off walls and picking the right coffee for you. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash M54. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash M54 and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash M54 for $30 off. Now that we've uh, completed our long excuse to get into those terrible ads, What's the news of the week? Well, I, as the resident Staten Island correspondent for Majority 54, I am happy to report that Staten Islanders, uh, we have a, a few very important Amazon fulfillment centers in New York City, and those centers were the first Amazon facilities in the world to unionize, and that just came down in a shocking development where there was a homegrown union called the ALU that voted to unionize those facilities. Uh, there was a leader named Chris Smalls, who is a employee of this facility, who pushed back against some of the uh, COVID safety protocols in the early days of the pandemic and was fired, has been leading that effort from the sidelines as a non-employee, and in many ways was mocked by Amazon leadership, won a stunning victory with very limited resources. And that facility or those series of facilities are now unionized. And I think this is a pretty big deal. What do we make of this? I think this is David versus Goliath, right? And and people love those kind of stories. It certainly reminds me of Moms to Be in Action, right? Taking on the most powerful, wealthy, special interest that's ever existed. And to see the power of grassroots organizing playing out and working I think is is going to be uplifting, especially to the younger generations who um, are tired of, of the conditions, the working conditions that are are being put out there, especially post pandemic. Just like you know, we said enough of gun violence. Uh, workers are saying the same thing, and there are certainly obstacles that are going to be in the way. This isn't a smooth path to victory for for unionizing, but. This is how you make progress, right? Baby steps, one big battle, winning each one at a time and being patient and being in it for the long haul. One of the things I think that we should watch for is here's what I think is going to happen next. As there are more Amazon locations around the country that unionize, Amazon will find a way to pass costs. They won't be costs related to the union, really, but they'll just find a way to make more money off of it and they'll blame the union. And here's what I think people need to keep in mind as this stuff comes up, because it also comes up with things like you know, automakers and everything else, is that this is a contract. When you enter into an agreement with a union, you've entered into a contract. And the idea that we would expect Amazon to not honor a contract or allow Amazon to blame somebody they contracted with for some corporate practice that we don't like, like, like they have all sorts of subcontractors. Like if they do something we don't like, we're not like, 
oh, you know, it's fine. That's a bad contract they made with that local transportation business. No, we're like, oh, well, perhaps you should have taken that into consideration when you made the contract. So my point is, employees, people who work for a living, should be treated with the same level of contract respect as any other vendor. And Amazon should be held to this as it goes forward. Yeah. And to your point, uh, one important data point to keep in mind here is that fewer than half of bargaining units reach a contract within the first year of organizing. So Amazon is going to drag this out and they're going to make make life hell for these people because they're going to want to set an example. If what comes out of this is a better workplace, higher wages, et cetera, then that will set an example for other facilities to unionize. They, they've narrowly lost the union vote in Bessemer. It looks like it's possibly going to be the same outcome on a second vote that just happened. So people are going to be looking around the country and saying, are things improving for these people? And if they are, then you're going to see more unionization efforts. And, you know, it's important national context because there are more and more retailers dealing with this. Starbucks has been dealing with an even more pronounced version of this right now. Howard Schultz, the former CEO of Starbucks, just recently reassumed the helm at Starbucks and publicly said that one of the main priorities he has is breaking the union. And he has real reasons to be concerned. Six out of 9,000 Starbucks locations have, are unionized, and these are all recent. But 100 plus stores are in the middle of votes right now. And so this is really serious for some of these companies. As somebody who has actually done a little of this work like back 100 years ago when I was a lawyer and I, I represented a union as it went through a card check and, and I was a member of the transportation union, the railroad union, because I used to represent them in the courtroom, I think it's important for people to understand how incredibly difficult it actually is to get a union recognized. Like people don't realize that, you know, you have to have an election, right? You have an election of the people in the bargaining unit and the employer despite the fact that there are a lot of laws to try and even it out, the employer has incredible access and leverage over the people who are voting. They have the opportunity to tell them all sorts of things about what they think it's going to cause in terms of their workplace, in terms of their pay. They get to say even like at least imply like, I don't know if we'll be able to keep this location if this happens. So to win an election as particularly an outside organization coming in to organize a bargaining unit is really, really hard to do. And what it speaks to is how deeply the people at a fulfillment center who, who choose to organize feel that the current working conditions and compensation cannot continue as, as they are. Well, they even fired, uh, They sorry, they, they got Chris Smalls arrested, the, the leader of this union, for bringing food to the employees in an effort to obviously build relationships, et cetera. But something you said is really important, which is for outsiders to come in. What I think people can can learn from this is that potentially this homegrown grassroots version is better because Chris Smalls had a counterpart who was still an employee, who was basically his co-leader of this union effort. And if you look at the data over time, Private sector unions have really been struggling. Uh, it used to be that the vast majority of union members in this country were private sector, and now it's flipped. Since 2009, the majority of union members are public sector unions. Not only that, but uh, a third of the non-agricultural workforce back in 1955 were union members. That's down to about 10% now. So union membership is on the decline. And so this new playbook could potentially be really interesting. And I think going back to our previous conversation about, you know, God, guns and gays, where does this fit into election politics? Who's going to be on the side of the average working person, which is what we're talking about? And this would be typically a Republican sweet spot, but I don't think it is. 
it's a good point. And it's something that we have to think more about because like when you go back to those numbers, Ravi, that 10% of the private sector workforce now is the only amount that is unionized. It's important for people to understand that that's because of changes in the law. It's not because of like a loss of popularity of unions. People aren't like, you know, I'd like to have a shittier workplace and get less in my paycheck. It's because the sweep of right to work laws across the country or right to work is now the law in Michigan. Like if you want to understand how powerful that corporate movement has become, the home of the big three automakers is now a right to work state. Like they've been incredibly focused on doing this. And what that does, we don't have time to go through a whole primer on right to work, but the end result of right to work is to completely disempower unions to the point where they have to spend so much time and energy trying to keep the members that they have that it is nearly impossible to grow. So to your point about having a small, you know, more grassroots union movement, yes, I think in the short run it's helpful. But in the long run, it's going to they're going to run into the same problems. And that's why you see like the United Auto Workers being the ones who organize teachers aides at universities. And it's why you see, you know, I don't even remember who's organizing, you know, some of the Starbucks workers, for instance. But it's why is it SEIU? Okay, that makes sense. It's why you see large established unions having to do that. I'll be remiss if I didn't mention that the politics of this are really interesting because Staten Island is a place that went for Trump, but it was also like one of those kind of Obama Trump districts that's a little bit eclectic. And I think this is this should be notable to people because it's a heavily unionized place that also leans Trump. And so it, in some ways, it, it has it has a lot in common with certain parts of Michigan, like you mentioned, and other parts of the country where it's this blue collar uh, vote that used to be Democratic but that Trump is appealing to. And I think this gives us an opportunity in communities like this to say, all right, the Republicans are for the big corporations. They could pretend to be populist all they want, but they know who's paying their checks. Koch brothers are still the most probably influential force in in Republican politics next to Trump. And they've been the architects of these right to work laws and the weakening of worker protections around the countries. And they know that when people aren't looking, they're going to do the bidding of Coke. But now when people are looking, we have to force them to make a choice. Amazon is a massive and powerful company. It is incredibly important that the workers at Amazon have this kind of power. And a lot of people are going to look at this, this news, the Starbucks news, and they're going to go, okay, labor is having a comeback in this country. And it is important for people to be realistic and realize the numbers do not bear that out. That the Janus decision, which affected public employees unions, took a million union members out of the union movement, a million dues paying people, and they were also career oriented individuals. How many people at Amazon or Starbucks are necessarily going to spend their entire career at those places as opposed to like public employee union members, right? Which means, yes, if you get 20 Starbucks locations organized, okay, you get, I don't know, how what are they like, average 10 to 15 employees per location, you get a few, but unions have lost a million members. And those people, by the way, how long does someone stay a barista? How long does somebody continue to work? at a fulfillment center, maybe a lot longer if they have a union. But my point is that labor in this country, organized labor, is still under attack and it's not making a comeback. But it is incumbent upon us to do what Shannon was talking about, which is to make this part of our messaging in terms of the way workers are treated and whether or not they have any leverage over their employer. And and in that way, we can advance the overall message of unions. 
Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. In fact, so does my wife. So does everybody associated with this podcast. So does anybody who runs into me and engages me in casual conversation. And in point of fact, yesterday, Diana and I were talking about different subscriptions in our life that we're ready to move on from. We're you know, thinking about, do we need like a new fitness tracker? We've been on the same one for a long time, that kind of stuff. And she was making her uh, AG1 in the morning, as we both do every morning. And she turned to me and she goes, I'll tell you something that I'm not moving on from. She was like, athletic greens. She said, I am drinking this stuff for life. And I swear that sounds so made up, but I promise you that is exactly what happened. It's because there's nothing out there like this where in the morning you'd wake up and you basically can take care of all your nutritional insurance right away first thing in the morning. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's no secret that Hollywood has become increasingly vocal about their politics in recent years. Actors, artists, and creators clearly feel the responsibility of using their platform for good. The question is, how? From Wonder Media Network comes a new show called The Accidental Activist. Former CNN anchor and acclaimed journalist Aisha Sasse speaks to cultural icons like Amanda Seals, Margaret Cho, and Jesse Williams to discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Aisha unpacks the moment they decided to get involved with social movements ranging from gun control to racial equity. At the center of it all, they illuminate a core truth of the human condition, the desire to make a difference in the world. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about jobs. You know, the Biden administration has had a lot on its plate and you know, we could forgive them for uh, a lack of message discipline here. But one thing that's been maddening is, you know, there's so many parts of our economy that are doing really well right now. And last week, we were greeted with news that the economy added 431,000 jobs in March. Unemployment is now down to 3.6%, which is compared to 3.5% in February 2020. So essentially, where we were right before the pandemic, total unemployed persons decreased to 6 million, which was compared to 5.7 million in February 2020. Uh, the labor force participation rate is about the same as it was before the pandemic. Uh, and so the economy is in many ways back to a very strong place with one obvious notable exception, which is inflation. And there is an interesting poll that came out recently where uh, they asked voters their own perceptions of what's going on. And more voters think we have lost jobs over the past year than gained them. What should Biden be doing about this and what should we be doing and messaging to people about this? As a former communications executive, this is the kind of thing that just drives me nuts. Sometimes I think I should leave my volunteer position at Moms to Me in Action and go do messaging for the Democrats because it, it just is so frustrating. We have a good story to tell on this. And it is what stymies us every single election cycle. We have to be talking to people and meeting them where they are, right? They're seeing price increases right now at the grocery store and at the gas station. Uh, they're seeing rent go up. They're seeing wages not keep up. And so, you know, the, the unemployment numbers, the data, the macroeconomic trends, it's, those are all important proof points. But the economic success needs to be felt in people's pocketbooks. And so we have to be talking about why they're feeling that. 
There's a similar dynamic around gun safety. Messaging is so key to this. A lot of parents come into the movement because, you know, the first time they send their kid to school, they have to do an active shooter drill and they start to feel like this isn't normal. This isn't okay, despite what they may be hearing out in the world, messaging from, for example, the gun lobby. And so, again, it has to be more than stats. It has to be more than bullet points. What is the comeback story? The Democrats are telling. You know, we have to acknowledge the pandemic and the road we've traveled together. We have to show we're on a path to a better future. We have to consider where we're telling the story, not just in, in the Washington, D.C. policy bubble. We have to make sure these messages are out there every hour on the hour in, in all the places where people can see them. And it, especially in communities where, where people are feeling inflation the most. I totally agree. It's really frustrating. And I I think it just goes back to the whole, like our society has become like the social media algorithm in that the stuff people are mad about, it floats to the top. And like I was talking with uh, Stephen Weber, who folks will know from being a guest on this show, uh, and who also basically everything I said about unions a minute ago was cribbed from a conversation with Stephen last night. I was talking with him. He's an organizer at the AFL-CIO, and he put out a story about you know unionization and about solidarity, and, and I had helped amplify it, and it could barely get any traction. It was a great story with a happy ending. And then like this week, I got frustrated and replied to Josh Hawley with a four-letter word, and that went everywhere, right? And so this is the same sort of deal. It's, I think it's two things. I think it's really hard to get people to talk about and be excited about good news if they're not entirely feeling it because of inflation, and even if they are. And then the second reason is because like, man, everybody just wants to move on from the pandemic. And the best success story that Biden has to tell is like, hey, you noticed how you can like go places now and like be around your parents without worrying yet you might kill them. That's the success story. And it's really hard to get people to talk about that because people are just so done with it. Just as a brief aside, what did you what was the, the Holly situation? Oh, I, I actually kind of was embarrassed that I, I, it was just a moment of weakness and I should have, I thought about deleting it and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to delete it. I'll stand by it. But he, you know, he's doing this thing where he's tweeting and messaging a lot about child pornography and pedophilia. And it's all that thing where he wants to be the guy who doesn't say QAnon, but he wants to wink at the QAnon oh, yeah. people. And in a moment of weakness, I replied to one of his tweets about it. And I said, QAnon is not going to fuck you, bro. Uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, glad oh you God. guys said you were keeping it classy for me this time. <laughs> yes. Sorry well, about that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just end, I'll end this. This is us classing it up, Shannon. And <laughs> yeah, can, yeah, this can is you believe people wonder? Shannon, like, you clearly didn't listen last week. Can you, uh, can you believe there are people out there going like, candor is just itching to run for office? Like, yeah. <laughs> I've thought about this often, Jason, about how... I feel guilty for how much I've gotten you on record on things over the past two years. Uh, so if you ever run, I, I'll feel bad. You're just but giving the, me more time with my family, Robbie. There you go. Well, uh, let me give people a dose of optimism here, which is there's plenty of time. And I, I don't think there's plenty of time between now and the midterms. So I, I wouldn't be as optimistic about that. But there's certainly plenty of time between now and the presidential election. And the presidential election has a way to instill a certain amount of messaging discipline. So when Biden is on the trail, I would suspect if, if he's, you know, if he's running again, that this will be what he's talking about the most. And if you remember this sort of magical feeling we had coming out of the State of Union address, where we were at our probably most optimistic over the past year, you could imagine that that will be 
be some semblance of what we're going to get from either Biden or whoever is the nominee heading into that election. That's the good news. The bad news is we're running out of time heading into the midterms. And so if and it's also like a question of what externally happens. Does inflation get under control? Like is COVID truly in the rearview mirror? I think that there's some time here. I, I think there is even enough time for the midterms, but definitely enough time for the presidential election. And so, it, you know, especially given how many news cycles happen nowadays. I agree, but I want to underline something Shannon said, which is, and, and I don't want to be the person who's like just sitting back and just playing pundit and just punching holes and everything and being complacent. But like everybody in the party's got to get on offense. We've been on defense for so long and and look we're naturally on defense we are in power but at some point you've got to get indignant and you've got to be out there and not just talking about job numbers like everybody in the party running for anything has got to be out there and going on offense doesn't just mean bragging about what you've done going on offense also has to be talking about what they want to do and how freaking terrible it is and their whole strategy yeah. is make you afraid of the democrats but like what the republicans want to do is actually scary. So we should make sure people understand that. A perfect example of that is crime, right? Right. So, you know, we've got Republicans always blaming Democrats and in particular Democratic mayors for gun crime, right? Gun homicides. And yet data shows us that that gun crime, that rise, that spike is happening most often in Republican run states. And we should be pointing the finger right back. Yeah. And not saying, no, we don't. But just saying, like, I don't know what the hell the, the opposite of no, we don't is. But like, you, you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we just talked about guns and violence. Shannon, we would be remiss if we did not ask you uh, about where we stand. Let's start at the federal level right now. Can you give us just a status update of where things stand at, on, in the gun control d- debate at the federal level? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we always talk about gun safety and and passing stronger laws as though it's futile. Um, And and we don't focus on the fact that that most issues are at a standstill in this country. The Senate is intractable. Um, The House has done their job on on guns, in particular, uh, Representative Lucy McBath from Georgia, a former Moms Demand Action volunteer, has worked very hard to pass laws through the House. They're not getting through the Senate. Really, not much is getting through the Senate. It's a 50-50 Senate. But I do want to give the Biden-Harris administration credit for really being the strongest on this issue in history. So they have worked hard to stop the proliferation of ghost guns. They have cracked down on gun trafficking. They have unlocked historic amounts of money for community violence intervention programs through the American Rescue Plan funding. Those investments of over a billion dollars are going into those local programs. They have announced new actions to prevent suicide through secure storage of guns. Um, But certainly there is more that can be done. We're not going to rest on our laurels. You know, there, there are things that President Biden can do right now without Congress to save lives. And that includes finalizing the ghost gun rule, and then strongly, strongly enforcing it. We saw yesterday that, that the Biden administration is considering nominating another ATF director. We need a strong director at the ATF that can bring real accountability to the gun industry. And then finally, addressing the dating partner loophole. And you may have seen that the Violence Against Women Act was, was reauthorized. That's wonderful and important. But there is still this loophole that leaves 
women who are, are not married or cohabitating with their uh, intimate partner abusers, it, it leaves them vulnerable to men who have guns in particular. And so that's something that, that President Biden can close with really the stroke of a pen. Frankly, like those three things you mentioned are, with the exception of getting the ATF director through, because they've already tried one and it didn't work. And it was and I'm biased because it was somebody from Giffords and, and I, I'm on that board, but I think it was a strong choice, but they couldn't get him through. So with the exception of that, the other two, ghost guns and and the loophole you spoke of, frankly, that's low-hanging fruit. There's not a political cost to doing either of those, really not one that you're not already experiencing. I mean, it's not like Biden's getting a lot of NRA support out there anyway. And so, yeah, that those both need to get done for sure. Speaking of the NRA... I know that Tish James has been going after them. There, there are all these articles over the past few years about financial impropriety and turbulence over there. What's the status of the NRA? Are they still on their heels or are they, are they still viable and formidable as an opponent? I'll tell you the status. Shannon Watson whooped their ass. That's the status. <laughs> my but go ahead and brag a little, Shannon. Because I, mean, I want to set the scene before you do. When you made your first Facebook post, you know, and the, created the beginning of the wave that eventually became Moms Demand Action, the NRA was, I would say, like one of the most, if not the most powerful political organization yes. in the country. Uh, and you were a mom demanding action. Now tell us where things stand. <laughs> You know, the the NRA, I think their worst nightmare was that women would rise up against them. And they were right. That 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 should have been their worst nightmare. And we all know back in 2012, the story now, where there was a lot of internal turmoil at the NRA about whether they would back down, which means come to the middle with the rest of America, mainstream America, and support things like a background check on every gun sale, or whether they would double down. And we know now that they doubled down and that they really set the stage for what would be the Trump presidency in 2016. But I think that it's it's so important to remember, as you said, you know, they had a 30 year track record of gaining political power and wealth. They were the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that's ever existed in this country. And so the idea that somehow, you know, overnight they were going to to change their position or that America could make huge change uh, on this issue was really unrealistic. What you needed was a grassroots movement that would take on the gun lobby. And I don't just mean at the federal level. I mean, at every school board hearing, at every city, city council meeting, at every state house hearing. And that's what we've created. Um, almost 10 years later, it'll be 10 years that we've been doing this in December. You know, we are larger than the NRA. We have over 8 million supporters. Uh, we outspent them in the 2018 elections. We defeated them in their own back backyard in Virginia in 2019. And this issue has become a top voting issue among uh, voters in, in states, but also for the presidential elections. And so here we go, you know, into a midterm cycle again. And we have so many um, Democrats in particular who are running on this issue. As you said, Jason, back in, in 2012, about a quarter of all Democrats had an A rating from the NRA in Congress. Not a single one does today. They're very proud of their F ratings. And so we have completely changed the political landscape on this issue. Now, you've got a weakened NRA because they're, they're hemorrhaging political power. They're bankrupt. They, they were unsuccessful in declaring bankruptcy. You know, so they sort of limp into these elections. That said, there are still lawmakers who are playing from this old playbook. 
that, that the NRA wrote. And it will take time to really remove the fingers that have a stranglehold on so many of our lawmakers in this country. And, you know, I don't think we saw coming what, what happened in 2016, which was that the Trump administration and, and that base of lawmakers that were swept in would embrace this as part of that extremist political platform. What you see happening in states where they're passing things like permitless carry, that has become part of that platform, even though polling shows constituents don't want it, law enforcement doesn't want it, first responders don't want it, average voters don't want it. And so, again, this is sort of something that we have to double down as a movement and not let up because these laws can be reversed. And I want to give you a couple examples really quickly. In Colorado last year, we reversed preemption. So we talked about Democratic mayors being blamed for for a gun crime. What a lot of people don't realize is that over 40 states have preemption laws, which the NRA helped pass. These laws prevent cities and local governments from creating policies that are different from state law. So if you're a Democratic governor in a Republican state, you have to abide by things like permitless carry. So in Colorado, you know, I lived in Boulder for a while. You could walk up and down Main Street near the college campus uh, with an AR-15, but not a dog. That was because of preemption. We went in and reversed that policy. Now Denver and Boulder and Colorado Springs, they can set their own policies. Those mayors can. And so we can reverse those in other states. In New York, we helped pass a law that really goes around, does an end run around PLACA, which is the law, the federal law that protects gun manufacturers from liability. So they're all things that we can do, but we, we really do have to have strength in numbers, which is why, you know, anyone who is listening, um, no matter where you live, a red or blue state, you should get involved in this issue. This is the part we used to call Grabinor. Right now we're calling it Road to the Midterms. And it's just where we invite you, our guest, to tell us about a race or two that isn't probably getting that much attention, but you feel should. Well, uh, you know, as a former Missourian, uh, I picked someone who who has synergies with you, uh, Jessica Piper, who is a, a first-time candidate running for Missouri State Representative. She has been a Moms to Man Action volunteer since 2017. Um, she's part of our Demand a Seat cohort, which is a, a campaign that we have internally to help Students Demand Action and Moms Demand Action volunteers win elections. Um, she is a gun violence survivor. She's also a mom, a teacher, a rural farmer, right? She's got a lot of things going for her in this race. And uh, you know, she has seen family farmers and rural communities really abandoned by Republican-dominated legislature uh, lawmakers who claim that they're, they're going to fight for them. And they've really sold out to big ag. Uh, and they've, at the same time, cut teacher pay and education funding. So I would say Jessica Piper is one to support. And then the other one I would mention uh, in Kansas, Joella Hoy, a uh, longtime Moms to Man Action volunteer running for re-election as a Kansas state rep in Lenexa. Uh, and, you know, she has really been engaged on the issue of gun safety, domestic violence, uh, repealing shoot first laws, uh, trying to ban ghost guns, especially after the recent school shooting by a student with a ghost gun. And she's just a rock star helping to uh, train other volunteers to run for office. Again, that's Joella Hoy in Kansas. I think Joella is running to represent my parents' district, but I'm not sure. Well, all right. That's awesome. So people can look up Joella Hoy and uh, Jessica Piper. 
as always, you can uh, tell us where we were right, where we were wrong, what you think of this new, you know, opening segment, uh, what topics we ought to cover, who in your life you've turned on to Majority 54 that, you know, it's changed their life, whitened their teeth, improved their hairline, whatever. You can call us at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Shannon is at Shannon R. Watts on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Shannon, thank you uh, for doing this again. It was a, it was thank a pleasure. you so much for having me. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman, and special thanks to Diana Kander. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you've heard us talking about grab an oar, doing your part, taking action to help change the world around you for the better. Well, if you need more inspiration or just want to hear a cool podcast where others have done just that, then check out Art of Power, a new kind of leadership podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Each week, award-winning journalist and best-selling author Arthi Shahani interviews fascinating people from all walks of life who've turned their passion into real-world impact. She focuses on outsiders like herself, people who are excluded, who are told they don't belong, but who broke through anyway. Her guests are household names like Barack Obama and names you don't know but should like Gabby Pacheco, the dream activist who cornered Obama into action. No question is off limits and Arthi takes you through intimate and unexpected conversations. That's her superpower. What's yours? Listen to The Art of Power today, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.